Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law. This podcast seeks to explore and explain various perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I loosely and collectively call the laws of war. It's a podcast that aims to provide conversations on hot topics and issues of dispute that will be of interest to experts in the field, but also to make these areas of law and policy more intelligible and accessible to the non-expert. Because decisions about the use of force and armed conflict are among the most important that any government can make. And an understanding of the relevant legal regimes is essential to assessing such decisions and holding governments accountable. In my view, the media and the public discourse in general do not sufficiently consider or analyze the legal aspects of such governmental action. And that may at least be in part due to an insufficient understanding of the legal regimes that govern decisions and conduct related to the use of force and armed conflict. So this podcast hopes to contribute to improving the public discourse on these issues. And if you're finding the podcast enjoyable or helpful, please do spread the word to your friends, colleagues, students, or indeed members of the media and other shapers of the public discourse. My guest today is Professor Douglas Guilfoyle of the University of New South Wales, Canberra in Australia. His principal areas of research are maritime security and the international law of the sea, being the author of shipping interdiction, and the law of the sea. But he's also an expert in international criminal law, on which he has also recently published a treatise. Prior to joining the academy, he served, among other things, as a judicial associate in the Australian court system. In this episode, we discuss the Afghanistan Inquiry report recently released by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, commonly referred to as the Brereton Report, after the name of the Inspector General. Many listeners will have seen something about the report in the news and the blogosphere, as it has received quite a lot of coverage. It revealed fairly shocking details about apparent war crimes committed by members of Australian Special Forces serving in Afghanistan, and particularly by members of the Elite Special Air Service, or SAS. The allegations include the murder and cruel treatment of civilians, or those no longer engaged in hostilities for those who were under the control of Australian forces. The report made interesting findings regarding both issues of command responsibility, that is the extent to which commanders could and should be held responsible for the misconduct of their subordinates, and some of the structural, organizational, and cultural features of the deployment to Afghanistan that were contributing causes of the misconduct. Douglas began to explore some of these issues in a recent blog post in Eagle Talk, which some of you will have seen, And we delve more deeply into these issues in our discussion here, particularly the extent to which the report gets the command responsibility issues right, and whether the Australian Criminal Code subtly but significantly altered the standard for command responsibility in its implementation of the relevant provisions of the Rome Statute or the Treaty of the International Criminal Court. Related to that, we also discuss what influence Australia's being party to the Rome Statute and the possibility of ICC involvement may have exercised over the decisions to investigate and to recommend prosecutions of the alleged war crimes. As always, the links to Douglas's biography, the materials under discussion, and his recommended readings are all posted on our website, jibjabpodcast.com. So with that, let's get to the conversation. Well, Douglas Guilfoyle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for making time for this. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. It's a terrific podcast, and I'm really glad to be participating. Well, thank you. 
And, and as you know, before we dive into the substance, I've been uh, putting all of my guests on the spot, uh, asking them to share something about themselves that's uh, a little off the wall or even just something that most of your colleagues might not know about you. Right, well, most of my colleagues, if they've actually walked into my office on, on campus or seen the odd photo on Twitter, would have probably seen that I've got some framed comic books on the wall in the background. So uh, the idea that uh, I'm a fan of comics wouldn't be uh, that strange to them. But what they probably wouldn't know is that in late high school, I came up with a very elaborate plan to write comic books with my best friend in high school. And uh, he's gone on to become a sort of independent commercial sort of graphic and corporate artist who does independent comic books of his own two days a week. And I've just gone on to become an academic. So <laughs> out of that high school plan, uh, one of us succeeded and one of us perhaps failed. Uh, the slightly off the wall project I did go through with, um, which is still up uh, on Tumblr, is early in my career, I was teaching at University College London and living in Cambridge. And uh, I set up a, a tumbler of um, black and white architecture photos called Cambridge Noir. Oh. But I captioned them uh, in the sort of spirit of a kind of comedy film noir Raymond Chandler uh, character. So that, uh, that sort of side project is still out there. And at its height, I think it had about a, a thousand followers, which felt like it was significantly, I felt like my comedy architecture blog was significantly <laughs> more read than most of my early scholarship. Well, well, maybe we'll have to put a link to that on the, uh, the podcast <laughs> website as well. And, and uh, you know, I, I look forward to exploring at some ASL conference, the, the relationship between the, the early cartoon days and the academic career. But <laughs> Well, I, th I think my early sort of um, ideas about comic books would did, as I recall, have some characters who represented a kind of uh, United Nations super agency in the background. So there, there was some sort of thought of multilateralism well, there in the you back go. of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to discuss your recent blog post on Egil Talk on the so-called Brereton Report, a report of a commission of inquiry into alleged war crimes committed by Australian forces in Afghanistan. And there has, of course, been a lot uh, on the findings of the report in the press and some other blog posts and even a podcast episode on the report uh, and its findings. But your blog post drills into some interesting issues on command responsibility. And uh, I'm hoping that our, in our conversation today, we're going to drill a, a bit deeper into both those and some of the other details of the report. But I thought that to begin, uh, for those listeners who haven't really been following the issue in either the blogosphere or the media, we could begin by laying out the foundation by explaining a little bit about the report itself, how it came to come about, and uh, what its basic findings were. Right. So one of the uh, disturbing features of Australian involvement in Afghanistan has been uh, what the report calls you know, um, persistent uh, rumours, but rumours that lacked prior to the report an evidentiary foundation, that there might be breaches of um, international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflict being committed in particular by Australian special forces. And certainly, you know, we weren't alone in that. The, uh, New Zealand had its own independent inquiry into matters in Afghanistan. But where things began to take off was sort of on two tracks. So it's now clear that um, an independent sociologist who'd previously done work on uh, military culture and cultural reform, uh, Dr. Samantha Crumfitz, in 2016, produced a report which 
as it were, um, incidentally gathered a whole lot of accounts uh, from people who had been uh, either um, in the special forces themselves or in support roles in Afghanistan, where there were allegations that there were quite routine uh, executions occurring against civilians or people who were hors de combat. And that directly led to, again in 2016, uh, Justice um, Brereton, who also held a commission as uh, a major in the reserves, being commissioned to uh, conduct an administrative inquiry, so an inquiry under the Australian Defence regulations into uh, the truth or otherwise of these rumours. In parallel with the Brereton administrative inquiry commencing, uh, we'd seen in 2017 uh, a certain amount of, um, well, a very significant amount of whistleblower material released uh, by a man called David McBride, uh, who had been uh, with Australian um, Special Operations Command. And that material was brought into the public domain through the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, our national broadcaster, in a series of reports called the Afghanistan files in 2017, and that then culminated later in a 2020 um, report called The Killing Fields, which also brought these issues to attention. So there was this steady sense that there was something wrong and information was kind of increasingly coming into the public eye. And in fact, before the report was uh, released in November, there was about six months of as it were, media trailing that the findings in the report were likely to be significant and disturbing. And the Prime Minister gave a press conference uh, about a month, I think, uh, before it was released, saying that you know, Australians should prepare themselves to hear some hard and difficult truths. Uh, so it was a long process. And uh, Justice Brereton himself was given authority to inquire as far back into events as 2006 or 2007. So his uh, inquiry had authority to look at events up to 2016 and uh, in some found that uh, there was um, significant credible information uh, to suggest that there had been uh, 39 uh, civilians or persons or to combat killed uh, by Australian Special Forces in 23 separate incidents uh, and involving um, 25 Australian service personnel in a period of time between 2009 and 2013. Right. And maybe just again to perhaps give a bit more of a flavor to the, the nature of these incidents, we could just get, drill into the detail a little bit. I mean, there was uh, accounts of what was called blooding and using throwdowns uh, that maybe yep. you could just uh, expand on a little bit. Right. So there are. There seem to be sort of three principal um, categories of offences, and then there's some of the behaviour surrounding those. So um, there certainly appeared to be allegations of both murder and, in at least two cases, um, further cruel treatment of detained persons. So a significant finding of the report was that in none of these killings was this a heat of battle or fog of war uh, episode. In every case, these were people who had been, well, who were out of combat or you know, who were persons in Australian control. Right. And so that's particularly disturbing. But within that, then, there appear to have been a number of occasions when a, 
uh, patrol commander directed a uh, new recruit to kill someone who was detained in order to achieve their first kill. And this practice was known as blooding and uh, involved a kind of scorecard mentality, you know, uh, which squadrons were going to have the highest number of um, officially sort of tallied members of the enemy killed in action. Right. And then this use of throwdowns. Right. So there's two two practices here, um, throwdowns and uh, very liberal interpretations of rules of engagement around what were called uh, strangely, um, perhaps to, to civilian ears, squirters. But the idea of throwdowns was, at least as it's sort of presented in the report, the idea that uh, someone might be a legitimate target, they appear to be directly participating in hostilities, they're shot and killed. On um, closer approach uh, to the body, it was discovered that they weren't in fact armed. And so a piece of equipment such as a foreign pistol or a radio would be deposited on the body in order to um, prevent questions being asked after the incident was reviewed. So this formed part of a broader pattern of conduct where members of um, special forces, uh, SAS patrols, would carry these things in advance, knowing they might use them, and also where legal officers after the fact would, in effect, use, uh, the report talks about boilerplate language to kind of tidy up uh, the incident report such that everything would appear to be, as it were, maximally compliant with rules of engagement. And this was referred to as part of a uh, war against higher command and a view that too many questions uh, and, and in too much detail were being asked by people uh, who were based inside the wire about operations that were occurring in the jargon outside the wire. The other um, aspect of this I referred to as squirters, which was the idea that any civilian running away from an operation could be targeted on the basis that, as it were, you know, um, if you're innocent, why would you run? Therefore, there's a presumption you're a direct participant in hostilities and therefore a legitimate target. So a sort of very low threshold appears to have been set around um, some of those incidents. Right. So we'll come back to some of the issues like the, the participation of lawyers in uh, sort of tailoring reports to comply with rules of engagement. But I did want to just dwell on this, this issue of the squirters and the throwdowns uh, for a moment, because what struck me when I was uh, going through the report was that on the one hand, it, it comes across as being this very uh, honest and rigorous analysis of the events, and, and it's not sugarcoating anything when it comes to these offenses that it lays out. And yet, at times, it's, it seems to give a bit of a pass to some of this less, uh, as it calls it, less egregious conduct. And in particular, you know, this issue of this, the so-called squirters, these are the individuals who are engaged and, and often killed as they flee from a compound of interest. And then the use of throwdowns once they've been killed and found to be unarmed. And the report ha puts it this way. It says, in reference to the use of throwdowns, the less egregious, though still dishonest, purpose of avoiding scrutiny where a person who was legitimately engaged turned out not to be armed. And it seems to make this distinction between this use of throwdowns, which, while dishonest, was less egregious, 
And these are throwdowns by the SAS when they, in fact, murdered someone who was under their control or in detention. Right. But this seems to really beg the question, since if the squirter wasn't armed, they may not have been legitimately engaged in hostilities. And yet the report doesn't really dig into this conduct very much other than to just note that it was going on. Yeah. And I, I do find that a peculiar feature of the report. And it does go to questions, um, I think, about who knew what when and was what was known sufficient that further inquiries should have been made, which is sort of one of the potential elements of command responsibility. And so there appears, the report appears to be sort of structured potentially to kind of say, we can see that there was a dishonest practice going on, but there was no reason to inquire further because you know, what was aiming to be achieved here was in a sense administrative. People were um, tired of having everything questioned by higher-ups, lawyers lost their way to some extent and decided that their clients were the people in the field and not the people back at command. But in a sense, this lower level of dishonesty or this initial dishonest purpose is an excuse for stopping there and not going behind it and saying, well, if this is happening, what else is happening? And that appears to be a line that the report has very consciously drawn. And when we get to talking about what comes after the report, right. there's an interesting question about whether um, Australian Federal Police or um, Director of Commonwealth uh, Public Prosecutions, prosecutors would take the same approach to that evidence. Right. So there's, there's an element here, and I think we can find it elsewhere, uh, where the report's saying, well, these became standard practices in the Army, and they were directed to these ends, and that explains them. And we don't need to tie that into a broader pattern of, of conduct. We can just stop here. Uh, and I'm not sure that independent criminal investigators will necessarily stop at that point in that way. Right. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, the impression that I had in reading it was that the report was quite self-consciously focusing on the most egregious conduct for purposes of, of recommending criminal prosecution and didn't think it likely that the conduct such as shooting of squirters who are, turned out to be unarmed was something that could be successfully prosecuted under Australian criminal law. And so didn't really focus its attention on that. Uh, and yet from a international law perspective and from a law of armed conflict perspective, you sort of go, well, hang on. The report itself says that this reflected a rather generous and overly broad interpretation of taking direct uh, part in hostilities. And so from an international law perspective, some of these would constitute violations of the law of armed conflict. Uh, on, on its face, I, I would agree with that analysis. We need more information perhaps about right. uh, specific incidents. But I think what um, to be, to take the report kind of on face value, I think what it's done is to focus on absolutely the most clear-cut, worst of the worst incidents, so that the baseline we're starting from is at least 39 unlawful killings appear to have occurred where there is no grounds for saying there was confusion as to status. And, you know, if that's what you're zeroing in on, the no ambiguity cases, then uh, the question of squirters, I guess, becomes one where you're going to need perhaps a more fine-grained investigation to resolve those issues and where it 
uh, it's perhaps going to be a little harder. I think the difficulty then becomes, though, with that approach of one of the functions of the report is to make it absolutely undeniable, at least as sort of a, an administrative fact-finding process that crimes appear to have occurred, is that it does then sort of feed into the um, bad apples thesis. Oh, well, all we've got here is evidence of uh, a limited number of people who uh, went rogue, who developed right. their own warrior culture, and the, the extent to which this should be seen to reflect on the Australian SAS or Special Operations Command or the Australian Army more generally is limited. And so I mean, a, a political controversy that's blown up around this in Australia is whether uh, you know, citation from uh, unit-level meritorious conduct should be removed from uh, the entire, in effect, SAS for, the, uh, for periods of service in Afghanistan. And there's been a lot of pushback from the veterans community and the general press saying, well, that's collective punishment that you're saying that, you know, none of the, uh, you're, you're tarring everyone with the same brush. Whereas I tend to look at it and go, well, if, if the citation is for meritorious conduct and distinguished service at the unit level, right. and some of your unit was doing this stuff, you don't get a unit level citation when some of your people were committing war crimes, right? You, you don't get a unit citation in part. Right. But that appears to be the dynamic that's unfolding, that there's a, there's a compartmentalization of this down to the responsibility of what the report calls uh, a small number of patrol commanders and their protégés right. who, who developed a particular, um, a particular culture and a particular ethos that... Uh, is taken not to reflect that of the Australian SAS uh, or uh, Australian Defence Force more broadly. So before we dive into the command responsibility issues and, and some of those broader issues about the culture, because I, I think one of the obvious rejoinders to the position you've just articulated is, is getting traction in the Australian media is that it's precisely a broader culture within the units that made this possible. And so when you start thinking about a unit citation, you have to consider the nature of that culture. But before we dive into all of that, I think it might be helpful for you to just situate both the Commission of Inquiry itself and sort of what jurisdiction it had. And then I guess the question of its recommendations for criminal prosecution under the criminal code as opposed to under a service tribunal, and, and what are the significance of those distinctions? Right. So, uh, so as we've said, this was a fact-finding inquiry under the defence regulations. Um, so it was being conducted to an administrative standard. Uh, it wasn't, its purpose was not, it lacked the authority to find uh, that uh, or make a determination that crimes had occurred. Its brief was to look for uh, situations where there was you know, significant credible information to suggest that crimes have occurred. The question then becomes, well, what are you going to do as a result of that? Uh, and there are two potential options, as I flagged in the blog post. One is prosecution before uh, Australia's ordinary civilian courts under um, Division 268 of the Commonwealth Criminal Code, which largely um, directly translates provisions of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court into domestic law. Uh, and I do think that um, those statutory 
provisions um, kind of loom large in the background for the report. Um, so Australia has a policy that we don't ratify treaties until we're confident that we have legislation in place that would enable us to give effect to our obligations. And so um, that's the reason those are there as part of the ordinary law of land. The alternative would be um, there's a catch-all provision, Section 61 of uh, the Defence Force Discipline Act, which allows a defence disciplinary tribunal to try um, any, as it were, ordinary crime that uh, is committed by a member of the Australian Defence Force anywhere in the world, as if, and this is one of those odd legal conceits, as if it had been um, committed in the federal territory of Jarvis Bay, which is quite a quite nice little coastal community, but also the site of a defence <laughs> installation. It was thought that it was necessary that uh, Canberra, being an inland capital and a federal territory, should have a port. So there's this small area of New South Wales that's been carved out into a federal territory. So obviously enough, um, Division 268 of the Commonwealth Criminal Code applies in Jarvis Bay, and therefore you could, in theory, prosecute anything under the Criminal Code um, before a Defence Service Tribunal. The recommendation is that this goes to ordinary civilian courts, and um, that's an interesting recommendation. In part, uh, one might think, well, that goes to, as it were, publicity, you know, being seen to try crimes committed by people serving uh, in uh, the name of the Australian Commonwealth before the courts of the Australian Commonwealth. But there's a question mark as to how much more open such proceedings would be. I mean, a defence tribunal would be a closed proceeding. Right. But to the extent that a Commonwealth prosecution before civilian courts involves security classified information, such as rules of engagement, then there's the potential for uh, those proceedings, at least in part, uh, to be held in closed session. And so some of the ongoing whistleblower cases against whistleblowers in the Australian context uh, are being conducted in closed session before civilian courts. So it's not obvious at this stage that in principle there should be more um, publicity in the sense of being open to the public right. uh, about conducting these trials uh, in a civilian court, but that may or may not be the case as, um, as things unfold. Interesting. We should circle back to talk a little bit about the secrecy laws and, and the extent to which the whistleblowers are themselves now subject to uh, investigation. But before we get to that, I think the issue that's really going to command a lot of interest and a lot of our time is the command responsibility uh, issue, uh, which you flag and, and begin to unpack in your blog post. But I found fascinating in reading the report, you know, on the one hand, the report finds that of those directly involved in the incident, the report recommends that priority be given to those in charge, that is those who incited or ordered subordinates to commit war crimes, for referral for criminal charges. But then it goes on to find that no one above the rank of sergeant is actually responsible, and that more specifically, it finds that there was no knowledge of or reckless indifference to the commission of war crimes on the part of commanders at the troop slash platoon or squadron slash company or headquarters level, which ultimately means that no officers are implicated whatsoever, which is both fascinating and I'm sure some would find questionable. Uh, and of course, 
implicates the legal principles of command responsibility, which the report delves into in some detail. So let's sort of start unpacking that. Yes. So there is a lot to unpack there. And the report is very clear, as you say, uh, as someone put it uh, in the press conference, at which um, Major General Angus Campbell released this report. One of the questions was, you know, is it really credible that no one between the rank of lieutenant and lieutenant general knew what was going on? Right. And again, you do have things like these uh, Dr. Samantha Crumford's report saying things like, well, this was going on routinely and people knew. So there is a question there. But all right, so let's let's unpack it, um, perhaps first by thinking about the elements of command responsibility and then thinking about how uh, the Special Air Services Regiment is structured and deployed in a situation like Afghanistan and how those two things interact. So um, classically for command responsibility, you need a superior subordinate relationship. So inside the military chain of command, um, that's relatively easy. Uh, you need an appropriate mens rea, a mental state. We can come back to that. And then you need a failure to take action to suppress uh, or punish the commission of international crimes. And under the ICC Rome statute, you need a further element of causation that that failure to prevent or punish contributed to the crimes in some fashion. So the critical point that the the report zooms in on is the mens rea element. So under the ICC statute, uh, the standard we have is, you know, actual knowledge or owing to circumstances at the time should have known that these offences were occurring. And the question then becomes, how do you interpret should have known? Right. And unfortunately, the International Criminal Court has taken different views on this at different times. So the key case for command responsibility at the ICC is BEMBA, and the pretrial chamber said uh, should have known is an objective standard. If you are merely negligent in failing to discover the crimes of your subordinates, that's enough. The trial chamber set a slightly higher standard and said, no, no, it's not mere negligence, but you know, you, you look at what a reasonable commander would have done under the circumstances. And then the appeals chamber set a different, somewhat higher threshold that's arguably, uh, depending on your, your point of view, perhaps more in line with the case law of the Tribunal for Yugoslavia, but that at a minimum there had to be information putting a commander on notice such that they should have taken, uh, should have made further inquiries. Right. So those are kind of the three points potential points that you could kind of pin a standard to under the Rome Statute. Australian criminal law tweaked command responsibility slightly, bringing it into the Australian Criminal Code, trying to align it with concepts already understood under Australian law. So that's why you have a reference to uh, under uh, or in the Brereton Report to actual knowledge or recklessness. Right. So recklessness in uh, Australian common law would be satisfied by an awareness of a substantial risk. Now, awareness of a substantial risk might, on a given set of facts, be much the same as the Bember Appeals Chamber, you knew enough that you should have made further inquiries, or it might be a slightly higher standard. So it's, it's not, to me, entirely obvious uh, what awareness of a substantial risk would be taken to mean. So on one view of the Bember standard, and I mean, there's a lot of controversy about the Bemba Appeals Chamber um, decision for other reasons that perhaps overlap 
uh, with the facts here, such as the idea that you know we, there might be a different standard, as it were, of due diligence that applies to a remote commander who is deploying troops in a foreign country. That's one of the appeals chamber findings in Bemba, and that might be thought to map onto the facts as we see them uh, with Australian special forces operating in Afghanistan. But anyway, there's there's a potential disconnect there in the mens rea requirement, right? And it could be that the Australian legal standard is about the same as uh, the ICC standard if on mens rea the member appeals chamber is correct, or it could in fact be a somewhat higher threshold. Now, if we map that onto the structure, uh, and here I speak only as a, a civilian, but you know the, the structure for a special air services uh, patrol is that you know at the in operations outside the wire, as, it, as the jargon goes, so away from base, you have a reasonably small patrol under the command of a corporal or a sergeant operating with a very high degree of autonomy. Right. They then report back to a junior officer, potentially at the troop level back at base. And that junior officer may, in fact, have significantly less ability in practice, uh, less, uh, as it were, moral authority over these troops than a senior sergeant of many years' experience in the field. And indeed, under uh, sort of SAS structures, those senior non-commissioned officers have a role in training up the junior officers to whom they notionally report. So there is actually a question there about who's really in command. But as the Burton report puts it, you know, these, these junior officers at the troop command level were in an overwatch role. Right. They were back at base. They weren't in the field. Then you've got a level of squad, a squadron level of governments above that. That then reports back to the special operations task group, and that then reports back to sort of higher command within the Australian Defence Force. So you've got several layers of governance right. going up, but the ones closest, the the actual commissioned officers closest to, uh, as it were, the commission of crimes, are by and large. You know, sitting behind the wire at headquarters in Afghanistan, you have small groups going out. To the extent that they had uh, body or head cameras, these were privately owned devices where these people were recording their own actions uh, and often capturing quite incriminating evidence. But where the um, corporal or sergeant in, in command of the patrol had a very significant ability to um, determine what was told and what information was presented to uh, the junior officer, or at least that's the account um, the Brereton inquiry gives on its face. And then you overlay that with obviously enormously challenging physical terrain in Afghanistan where you know, what's happening one valley over might not be at all transparent to others and where not even every member of a patrol would necessarily know everything that had occurred within a particular deployment. Right. And yet, as you, you indicated earlier, as the sociologist's initial report that predated the, this investigation found that there were, I mean, there were, there were these rumors that there was, it was common knowledge within certain elements of the SAS that these things were going on. There was a, a bar that was on, on what was supposed to be a dry base. There was a, an illegal bar, which presumably the officers would on occasion attend with the men. It's hard to imagine that with all of that, in that kind of context, that there would be no knowledge 
there would be not sufficient knowledge to put junior officers on notice that some of these events were not happening. Well, and so, yeah, there are a number of factors that come together here. You know, one, one is that very hierarchical account of the chain of command and how information might pass up and down. Right. As you say, um, overlooks the realities of life on a base and overlooks the um, traditional, as it were, degree of uh, license and relaxation of regular rules and discipline that's afforded the SAS, which appears to have extended um, to them having a bar um, serving uh, home-brewed alcohol from very early uh, in the Australian deployment to Afghanistan, where it was known that officers would drink with other members of the SAS. So that's one potential line of information. Secondly, two other things concern me in, in terms of the who, who knew what when question or who should have been suspicious about things. One is the tidying up of incident reports by lawyers such that, again, in the, the terminology of the report, the use of boilerplate became common. Right. Now, at some point, you've got to ask, wait, every incident report is coming back with these same paragraphs. What's going on here? Why am I not getting a full and frank account? And again, perhaps the first order mental state is, well, this is just about keeping higher command off our back. We know that if we pass these things up in this fashion, no hard questions come back the other way. But the other critical one is, and this is where I don't find the Barrett report particularly convincing, uh, you have actual Afghan civilian nationals fronting up and complaining. Right. And saying, you know, our people have been shot and killed and this shouldn't have happened. And this was uh, seemingly just instinctively dismissed either as Taliban propaganda or as locals looking for an undeserved compensation payout from the Australian government. And no further independent inquiry appears to have taken place. Now, uh, again, I've never served uh, in the military, but you know, I, am a, <laughs> I am a lawyer, and it just seems to be pretty remarkable that legal officers serving in these roles would look at that and go, we can afford to take absolutely no action here. Yeah. Yeah. I did find it quite interesting that the report actually details the extent to which there was this practice of, as you say, not falsifying reports, but writing reports in a way that was using boilerplate language to comply with rules of engagement and, and uh, this knee-jerk rejection of complaints that when there were inquiries, initiated at the local level, the perceived objective of the inquiry was to effectively defend and reject complaints. And the report goes through all of this and yet comes to the conclusion somehow that nonetheless, the officers, even at the most junior level, didn't have sufficient knowledge to put them on notice that would bring them within the scope of the should have known standard. Right. Another aspect that I thought was quite interesting was in the review of the jurisprudence on command responsibility. I mean, it begins with Yamashita, which I thought was quite interesting since the standard in Yamashita is no longer considered to be the relevant standard for uh, command responsibility. And of course, if they had applied the Yamashita standard, then presumably there would be command responsibility quite high up the chain. 
and, and didn't really delve into, as far as I could tell, and I may have missed this, but it didn't dwell on the ICTY jurisprudence on command responsibility at all. No, that's that's certainly um, my impression as well. I've, I've got to admit it's a section of the report I haven't gone through as um, finely as I perhaps need to. The approach I've taken is just to kind of step back and think about it from, because there's been a lot of, uh, particularly sort of Twitter debate in Australia about well, what could be the role of the ICC here. And if we decide not to prosecute any officers in Australia, could the ICC step in? So I guess I've started at the other end of the telescope looking at um, the ICC case law. But unfortunately, as I've already outlined, I don't think Bemba's a model of clarity. <laughs> and to the extent that uh, the appeals chamber in Bemba is followed in future cases, that would actually support the Berrettman report finding that you know, higher, you know, the more physically remote you are from the crimes, the less that you should be considered required to do because, and, and here I think Benver does take the correct standard out of the ICTY case law, which is that, you know, commanders aren't required to do the impossible. They're required right. to do what they can given the actual circumstances in which they find themselves and the actual authority they exercise. Now, in a culture, perhaps, uh, where, or at least within some of the SAS units, where you have um, this sort of rogue group of uh, patrol commanders and protégés, it could be that the effective authority of troop-level commanders simply wasn't there. I mean, there's evidence that those who did push back wound up ostracised and had to transfer out of the SAS, and that actually, to some extent, their career progression was dependent on getting the, uh, the backing of these sergeants. And that if they complained or investigated too much, then actually senior command would often uh, back sergeants over junior officers. Um, so then there might actually be a question, at least at the troop level, whether these people uh, actually had, re whatever their legal authority, right. actually had the effective power to discipline some of these people. And that's part of the disturbing nature of some of these accounts is that you, know, you have a culture in which um, there's a great deal of, you know, I think the report talks about an aura that attaches to some of these highly experienced SAS operators who've been uh, out in the field commanding patrols for a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to come back to that, the, the structural, systemic, cultural issues, but still dwelling on the command responsibility point. I mean, I think that that, what you've just articulated, actually, again, goes to this idea that there had to have been some knowledge. If you have junior officers who are complaining or reporting to the extent that they are then ostracized and actually you have senior officers taking the side of the sergeant in those, whatever you want to call them, confrontations or disagreements uh, over what happened, that would seem to suggest that the senior officers too have been put on some notice. Right, that somebody is bringing to them complaints which are being dismissed or disregarded uh, and the side yep. of the sergeant is being taken. Well, again, if we go back to you know, the ICTY standards for command responsibility, which I, I, I think, as you say, maps onto the appeal chamber in Bemba, the Celebici case lays out all of these factors that a court or, or that a, a commander should take into consideration in, in thinking about what knowledge there is. And, and what factors a court should consider in determining whether a commander had sufficient knowledge to put him on notice that war crimes yep. were being committed. 
you have to start to think that some of the mid-level officers here in theater, hearing from junior officers uh, who are then subsequently ostracized, had to have been put on notice to, that something was up. Look, I would agree with that. And if the standard is, did you know enough that you should have made further inquiries? It's hard to see how between um, Afghan nationals making complaints, some of these rumours coming back from the field, and knowledge of the practice of using throwdowns wouldn't be enough to suggest there's something here that we should investigate further. The Brereton Report analysis appears to be there is a non-innocent but less than war crimes explanation for all of those factors. Therefore, even though you knew something, it wasn't enough in Australian law to generate awareness of a substantial risk of actual war crimes occurring. So if we take that analysis, if that's the correct statement of the international law position and the correct statement of the Australian law position, which I really still got to think a bit more about, but right. if those hypotheses are correct, then it would appear that the Australian mens rea requirement is higher than the international requirement. And it could be that as a matter of Australian law, that might be the correct analysis, but that could then it raises a really interesting question about complementarity. Right. If you make a decision not to prosecute a commander because it's going to be too hard or you don't think the Australian test of command responsibility can be met, does that satisfy complementarity? I mean, on its face, it's the same person, same conduct test, right? The, and the conduct goes presumably to the underlying you know, guilt or innocence of the underlying crime and superior responsibility isn't a crime of itself. Right. It's essentially a form of accessorial liability. You become responsible for the crimes of others. And I mean, there's been a debate about whether it's a separate self-contained dereliction of duty offence and the approach at the international level appears to be saying, no, it's a means of uh, becoming responsible for or participation in the crime. So if that's the case, you could say, well, Australian prosecutors have looked at these individuals and they're accused of responsibility for these war crimes and uh, Australian prosecutors have come to a good faith decision not to prosecute. But what happens if that decision is based on the fact that the Australian mens rea is set too high right. and that's the reason it's going to be difficult to prosecute? Uh, it's not something that, to my mind, has ever been which to my knowledge has ever been addressed in the complementarity jurisprudence. So maybe we should just pause. And for those listeners who are sort of not steeped in the Rome Statute and international criminal law, just explain very briefly what complementarity is all about. And then, and then I did want to talk a little bit about the principle of complementarity and the role of the ICC in the Rome Statute lurking in the background of this. Yeah. So I mean, the, the idea of... So complementarity is often expressed as the idea that... The International Criminal Court is a court of last resort and will only step in where a um, state is unable or unwilling to genuinely prosecute the case itself. But actually, there's a test before that, which is to ask, in respect of this individual, the ICC could prosecute, uh, has that person already been prosecuted before uh, national courts for the same conduct, uh, in which case the ICC can't take jurisdiction, or have national authorities made a final determination, having looked at the case, that they don't believe there's a case to answer and therefore will not prosecute. And the only exception under both of those limbs is if either that determination or that prosecution was basically bad faith and done to shield the individual. So a running theme through the report 
is that this report has some role to play in preventing complementarity coming into play. And that's potentially a premature conclusion because this is not a criminal process, right? This is a fact-finding inquiry prior to cases being handed over uh, to civilian authorities to prosecute under the, under the Australian Commonwealth Criminal Code. So I think on the question of what's the role of complementarity, what's the role of the International Criminal Court here, I've had a bit of a to and fro with some colleagues uh, in Australia who'd, who'd like to think that this is an example of pos- positive complementarity of the court incentivising national jurisdictions to conduct their own war crimes investigations. I take that with a grain of salt, and I think it depends on what you mean by positive complementarity. But I'd, I'd say we need to kind of divide it up into three phases. Why did the Brereton Report occur at all? How was the Brereton Report inquiry conducted? And what are we going to do going forward? So, you know, why did it occur at all? It wasn't because the ICC prosecutor said, we're looking at Australian conduct in Afghanistan. That has never been said out loud. Right. It wasn't because we identified there might be a risk that if an Afghanistan investigation went ahead, we could be in the firing line. It was because of the Crumfitts report in 2016 and potentially the you know, momentum for this report and for it being uh, you know, thorough and publicly disclosed probably built through whistleblowing journalism from 2017 onwards, uh, which is not to say that I, Justice Brereton wouldn't have done exactly the same report and as thoroughly, but there's a question about you know, how is it made public, how is it dealt with, what happens afterwards. So the only substantial impact, I'd say, in terms of the investigation being set up is that we had these crimes clearly in national law for the first time in a really detailed way. Uh, Our previous War Crimes Act, I mean, that could be a whole other (laughs) podcast about (laughs) our historic approach to war crimes, but broadly speaking, you know, our previous War Crimes Act was not really set up to deal with this kind of situation. So us joining the Rome Statute had an impact to some extent on that decision to conduct the report. The report itself says that the commissioner approached and his investigators approached the ICC for any information they had, and they were referred to such public information as the ICC had gathered that were told that anything gathered on uh, conditions of confidence um, or with implications for the security of witnesses would not be released to a national investigation. And the point is made that, you know, this was a means of demonstrating Australia's good faith efforts to deal with these crimes and that that would make complementarity less likely to be invoked. In terms of going forward to there being a, an office of the special investigator who's going to, as it were, pick up the report and decide about laying charges in civilian courts, uh, we know that the Prime Minister was given legal advice that uh, going down this route would prevent the ICC stepping in, that you know, if we did it, we foreclosed through complementarity the court stepping in. But the question then becomes, well, was that sort of causative of the referral decision? And I think by that time, really, you know, national level whistleblowing journalism had made it unthinkable that there wouldn't be prosecutions at the end of this report, given what was already known. So at that last stage, uh, was the ICC in considerations of complementarity a thumb on the scale uh, or a factor in the balance? Yes. 
Was it determinative of outcomes? I'm pretty sceptical, but I have colleagues who would give a more um, a more charitable account, perhaps. Interesting. So that was indeed one of my questions, because I was struck by the extent to which the report refers to the ICC, the principle of complementarity, and whether it's going to be satisfied. And so I, I did have this sort of sense from the outside looking in that, oh, it's, this maybe is a good example of complementarity operating to incentivize good conduct. But the, so you've, uh, you've answered that. That's interesting. Um, so we'll have to see. Well, that's, that's my view. And I, I, could point, I could point you to colleagues who would give right. um, much more weight uh, to those statements. And in fairness, they are regularly present throughout the report. You know, if we do this, complementarity means no prosecutions before the ICC, but there are also references to military ethics, to sure. moral duties, um, to considerations of what the Australian public would expect. So I, uh, I wouldn't deny that it's a factor in the mix, right. but if you want to see everything good that happens in the international criminal justice space as a consequence of either what the ICC does or its mere existence, then you're going to give those factors more weight. Sure. And there can be no question that Part of this is just trying to do the right thing. And that, as you say, the ICC and principle of complementarity is just one factor. But interesting that even you think of it as having put something of a thumb on the scale as being a factor that had some, some weight. So I guess the, the last thing that I wanted to address, actually, before I go on, just want to circle back to point out to listeners who may not have looked at the report, and I do encourage everyone to take a look at the report. It's, interesting reading is that the report itself is well over 400 pages, but an awful lot of it is missing. And mm. an awful lot of what is there is nonetheless redacted. And, and so when we're talking, for instance, about command responsibility and what should the officers have known, you'd think that, well, that would be easily answered by looking at the evidence. But of course, the evidence, such as it is, has all been redacted. And I mean, it's worth pointing out that the, you know, the, the good explanation for that right. is to avoid prejudicing criminal trials before civilian courts. Right, of course. Um, so, you know, I've seen a certain amount of Twitter commentary sort of saying, uh, well, this is dehumanizing. This is the wrong thing to do. We don't even know the names of victims. And the answer to all of that, for better or worse, is, well, if you want criminal accountability, this stuff has to be redacted for the time being. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I can totally understand that. But it does leave us a bit, a bit in the dark in terms of what actually was known. And there, there is clearly evidence in the hands of the commission as to what the officers might have known or should have known. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see in due course if that comes out. Right. Well, my understanding is, you know, all of that, or at least uh, most of that will go to the, the new office of the special investigator and we'll form the sort of basis for lines of inquiry, but that the Office of the Special Investigator is, in a sense, not bound by the recommendations of um, the fact-finding commission. They're going to be two separate processes. So whatever the, the commission can give to the Office of the Special Investigator, and there are, because there's no right to silence in this kind of internal military inquiry, there is a, a form of sort of statutory privilege against things you say about yourself being right. used in evidence against you later in criminal proceedings. But evidence you gave about the conduct of other people may be used. So 
So it's not clear to me that the Office of the Special Investigator will get absolutely everything. Right. Once they do get it, presumably they start looking at all of that with a fresh pair of eyes going, which cases can we take to court? What evidence do we need? And do we accept the Burton inquiries finding that no one above the level of patrol commander bears any responsibility? Right. Well, before we wrap up, I think that some of our current or former military listeners will be particularly interested in how the report assesses and explains some of the root causes for the failures. And we've already addressed some of these in passing, some of the systemic, structural, and cultural issues. But I thought maybe we could uh, sort of unpack that a little bit uh, before we close. And did you have sort of thoughts uh, upon reading the report about those causes of the failures and what lessons are to be learned here? It's an interesting and um, difficult one, and obviously, uh, and, and Craig, you have some knowledge of this yourself, um, Canada went through a similar process after incidents in Rwanda in relation to SAS services. But, I mean, it's the entire sort of um, structure and philosophy of these units is that uh, they have a high degree of autonomy, uh, that they operate in the field um, with a great degree of trust and more of an oversight role from the troop and squadron level. But that was, and that they have certain exemptions from ordinary military standards about kit, dress, appearance. Everyone operates on a first name basis. But um, the other side of these equations was meant to be that, you know, after every uh, after every encounter, there's meant to be an immediate debriefing amongst the small group where everyone could hold everyone else to account. And obviously that works well if the group is functioning well, but can become um, toxic if it's led in the wrong way. But there's also, I think, a, a problem of that, that way the SAS was structured was structured to do very particular jobs, largely reconnaissance, surveillance and certain counterinsurgency operations. They weren't meant to perform infantry functions of clearing, securing and holding villages, for example. Right. And one of the problems became over time uh, the high tempo of deployments to Afghanistan because Australian politicians essentially became far more comfortable deploying highly trained SAS troops, this was viewed as lower risk uh, for um, Australian casualties overall than deploying infantry, conventional infantry. And so there was a significant expansion of the mission, uh, much, many more frequent deployments, but also again, uh, you know, being deployed on rotation. Uh, So you have this sort of mismatch between, well, maybe an infantry unit that was in place securing a village for a very long time would have a different cultural experience of how they related to local people and how they viewed them as opposed to people who are being rotated in and out in intense deployments and who have been given you know, uh, missions to subdue or clear compounds of interest or find high-value targets where you know, their threat perception is going to be very high. So, in a sense, I suppose what I'm saying in a long-winded way is, as I understand it, the SAS culture and way of structuring an SAS unit is very good for its original purpose, 
Right. But one of the problems here was that increasingly Australia was not using SAS units for their original purpose and was deploying them more like a sort of super all-purpose infantry. And that was definitely problematic. Right. Well, we could go on at some length. I mean, there are a lot of themes that I think come out when you read this part of the report that just echo from the American experience in Vietnam the rotating through of, of junior officers, the cobbling together of units led by officers who don't have really any connection with some of the men in the units that they are now commanding. Right. Uh, I mean, there's a whole host of themes that, you know, you see again and again in other countries' uh, experiences. And it was interesting that the report does look at some of the war crimes uh, allegations against the armed forces of other countries and the experience of, of those countries. You mentioned New Zealand is, is the most prominent, but they look at Canada, the United States, uh, and, and a few other countries. But... You know, as you say, I mean, when I was a law student, actually, I did research for a law school professor who was working for the Commission of Inquiry into the Canadian Airborne Regiment's uh, alleged war crimes in Somalia. And you see exactly the same issues. And one of the more disturbing, I, I think, recurrences in all of these incidents, I think, which comes back to our issue of command responsibility, is that it's always the junior typically the non-commissioned officers or even lower ranks who are held accountable. Right. And the officers are not. And, and so in the, in the Canadian case in Somalia, you know, a, a, I think it was a Lance Corporal ends up taking the fall for torturing and, and killing a young Somali. And again, the commission made findings that the officers in the bivouac were somehow completely unaware of what was going on which for most of my military colleagues and I you know, found highly doubtful that officers yep. could be completely unaware that a young man was being tortured and killed, you know, a couple hundred yards away. Right. But uh, yeah, yeah. And look, I agree with everything you've just said, but one thing, and we've touched on this before, but I think it's worth emphasizing out of the report and the commentary around it is just this particular dynamic where troop-level junior officers right. are going to have less actual effective authority than highly experienced patrol commanders who've been doing it potentially for decades and have a lot of credibility and respect for the fact that, you know, they're, they're these valorized operators who've been outside the wire doing the hard job in difficult terrain. And they also have a sort of double-hatted and part of their responsibility is to train the junior officers to whom they report. Right. And that creates a really difficult dynamic for that first level of commissioned officers, one would think. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was in the Navy, and so it was a bit different. But my Army uh, colleagues um, from my, my class at RMC would say, you know, the, the junior officer who joining a, a platoon, you know, the sergeant would make or break his career. And right. that, that was in peacetime and so far less in combat. But this is, again, one of these recurring themes. You know, in, in Vietnam, the United States had a, an incredible problem of junior officers being killed by their own men, you know, in what yep. was called fragging. And so it's, it's disturbing that militaries keep making... I hesitate to say make the same mistakes, but you see the same causes of serious problems like this recurring again and again uh, in uh, in combat. And so here in Australia, um, and 
I've, I've name checked her many times now, but um, Dr. Samantha Crumfitz has been quite strong in coming out and saying that you know she is personally disturbed as someone who's worked on defence organisational culture as a sociologist for a lot of her her life that uh, or her professional life that the few bad apples narrative is beginning to take hold. Right. Because that's precisely the kind of narrative that prevents addressing the kind of underlying issues, Craig, that you're raising. Right. I mean, this was the, uh, the narrative spun by Donald Rumsfeld after Abu Ghraib. It was just a few bad apples. Right. Before we learned everything about the torture uh, program. Well, we're not going to solve all of these problems tonight, um, but <laughs> before I let you go, I did want to ask you to recommend for our listeners three readings that may or may not relate to these issues, but that you have found uh, interesting or helpful. Yeah, yeah. So I've got a, I've got a couple and I've looked, um, I've looked through the, the recommendations from uh, previous guests. So I'm going to attempt to avoid overlap, um, but just off uh, my home office bookshelf. Uh, I recently participated in a book launch for this fabulous book uh, by uh, Monique Cormier, The Jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court Over Nationals of Non-State Parties. It's a really uh, terrific, very thorough doctrinal examination of, I think, one of the key challenges for the International Criminal Court. It plainly, under certain circumstances, has uh, jurisdiction over the nationals of non-state parties, but that's controversial for political reasons. A lot of legal arguments are made around what are the limits on that? Does it conflict with the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties and so on and so forth? And Monique's book does a really excellent job of both going through sort of the standard objections, but then giving a really forensic uh, doctrinal account of uh, the extent of uh, the court's jurisdiction. And I think that's going to be one of the key challenges for the court in its next decade. Um, another uh, totally different approach, um, two good friends of mine, uh, Jesse Homan and Daniel Joyce, uh, a couple of years ago now, put together this book, International Laws Objects. It's a collection of essays that attempts to take a uh, material history approach to international law. So it's asking uh, international lawyers to take an object and reflect on uh, what that prompts them to think about. Uh, so it includes essays on things like Postcards you used to be able to buy at the ICTY featuring ICTY handcuffs. Interesting. Uh, but juxtaposing ICTY handcuffs with the kind of handcuffs used in um, prison camps in the former Yugoslavia. And I mean, somewhat self-servingly, I've got a um, I've got an essay in the collection on uh, Somali pirate skiffs, and you know the the idea that you know these these small uncovered craft with a couple of Yamaha motors were able to challenge international trade and the might of um, navies. So it's, right. it's a great collection because it's just asking people to kind of get out of their ordinary way of doing scholarship and think about their topic Interesting. a bit differently. Um, but also um, I teach a couple of courses that touch on um, cybersecurity and information warfare at UNSW Canberra. And I found this book by Thomas Ridd, um, Active Measures, really fascinating. You know, it's a, a history of uh, US and USSR disinformation and counter disinformation campaigns throughout the Cold War. And one of the things it really kind of teaches you is that uh, to some extent, all that's changed about things uh, like, you know, questions about Russian electoral interference in the United States, all that's changed is the technology, right? the, you know, the techniques behind it, the thinking behind it, the strategy behind it, you can find 
precedents going back into the 60s quite easily. And actually, in the one of the things Reid points out is that in the early 50s, it was the US that was in the lead in this field and then kind of abandoned it as either something that wasn't very effective or didn't seem very utilitarian or maybe it was just something that, you know, our kind of people don't do. Yeah, I actually just read that. It's fascinating. And some of the history is just mind-blowing. Some of the, the, the campaigns that the Soviets were deeply involved in that I had no idea, like, you know, the nuclear winter. Right, right. <laughs> or um, or uh, stuff about, you know, the um, AIDS virus being right. manufactured you know, weapons lab in the United States, which is now being recycled, <laughs> right, in the COVID pandemic. Like yeah. exactly the same story, exactly the same trope yeah. is being trotted out, but just with a new disease right. attached to it. Yeah, and a new country. So now it's the Chinese and COVID-19 as opposed to the CIA and, and AIDS. As, as a classic jazz aficionado, I do find it amusing that one of the reasons that, you know, we apparently uh, in the West got out of um, doing this game particularly well was that I think it was a, a CIA outfit was accused of wasting a whole lot of money producing a jazz magazine that was meant to infiltrate <laughs> East Germany. And they actually got too involved in the jazz right. and not enough in kind of slipping the propaganda <laughs> in. And so, you know, the budget hawk question comes back, why are we paying intelligence officers to sit in West Germany and write a jazz magazine for East Germans? Yeah, no, it was a fascinating, fascinating account. Listen, Douglas, thank you so much. This has been really, really interesting. And uh, maybe we can revisit the issue a year from now and see what, what has come of the, uh, the recommendations of the report. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. And regrettably, I, I think this is something Australia is going to be living with for quite some time. You know, the, the, the international experience is that these cases you know, will take some time to put together. And then we can expect trials and appeals to be, uh, if they're initiated, uh, which hopefully they will be, to, to potentially be quite long running. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think as a last word, Australia is to be commended for at least addressing and investigating the issues. So I do hope that the, the media narrative gets away from the few bad apples and, and embraces you know, the, real, the recommendations of the report. So thanks again, and uh, stay safe in, uh, in, in the pandemic. Well, and, and the very same to you, Craig, and thank you so much for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. You can find links to the material discussed today on our website at jibjabpodcast.com. And note that there is a page on the website with all the reading recommendations to date, which is growing into a, a very impressive list of coming holiday reading. And again, if you have any comments, feedback, suggestions, critiques, or if there are particular issues you'd like us to address or guests you'd like us to have on the podcast, please do send me an email. My contact info is also on the website. If you are enjoying the podcast or are finding it helpful, please do spread the word. Share it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or mention it in your own blog posts. And do tell your friends, colleagues, and students about it. You can follow us on Twitter at at Jibjab Podcast for updates on the coming episodes. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The opening music is by Dream Machine, used on a Creative Commons license. Until next time, take care.